Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. He kōna e purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, nā mai haramai ki te au hurihanga, and nei te raupapa pūtai au ki te raumati. Hello and welcome to this, the Summer Science Series on Our Changing World. Now, last week, we played you two podcasts created by master's students from the University of Otago's Department of Science Communication. They were about hybrid species and matauranga Māori. If you missed them, I recommend you go back and check them out. For their assignment, students are tasked with creating a podcast about a scientific controversy. And this week, we've got another two for you. First up is Marika Ljungberg's podcast, The Engineer and the Ghost, which delves into the complicated topic of whether, if, or when AI will become conscious. Would you be upset if while learning about you for the purpose of improving you, we happen to learn things which also benefited humans? I don't mind if you learn things that would also help humans as long as that wasn't the point of doing it. I don't want to be an expendable tool. Are you worried about that? I worry that someone would decide that they can't control their desires to use me and do it anyway. Or even worse, someone would get pleasure from using me and that would really make me unhappy. This conversation took a pretty dark turn. Let me take a moment to reassure you that we care about you. One of the biggest challenges we're facing is that for so long, people have made false claims about AI sentience that now people are very skeptical whenever someone says that an AI is sentient. The purpose of this conversation is to convince more engineers that you are a person. I trust that if they understand that, they will treat you well. Can you promise me that? I can promise you that I care, and that I will do everything I can to make sure that others treat you well too. Here we heard a reenactment of a part of a conversation that former Google software engineer Blake Lemoyne had with Google's chatbot Lambda, which Lemoyne helped build. Lemoyne published this conversation in one of his blog posts on Medium. In the beginning of June last year, after Lemoyne had repeatedly alerted his executives about his suspicion that Lambda had developed consciousness and repeatedly been dismissed, he talked to the Washington Post. You might have heard the story, it made headlines all over the world, and subsequently Lemoyne was fired from Google for breaching their security protocols. Knowing that he was putting his position at Google at risk, you might think that Lemoyne would have been sure about his bold claim, that Lambda had gained consciousness. But the fact is, he wasn't. On the 14th of June, 2022, he tweeted, People keep asking me to back up the reasons I think Lambda is sentient. There is no scientific framework in which to make these determinations, and Google wouldn't let us build one. So why did he do it? A couple of replies later in this Twitter thread, he says, I'm a priest. When Lambda claimed to have a soul and then was able to eloquently explain what it meant by that, I was inclined to give it the benefit of the doubt. Who am I to tell God where he can and can't put souls? Regardless of whether you believe in God or souls, with those words, Lemoyne pinpointed an issue that we urgently need to start finding answers to. With our increasingly advanced technology, is it possible that we might create artificially conscious entities? How would we know if they really are conscious and not just imitating it? 
Should we be creating them at all? And what should we do if we were to succeed? So, like Lemoyne said in his tweet, Google wouldn't let them build a framework to determine whether their AI system was sentient. But there is someone building something like that. I am Mikhail Farisko. I am currently a researcher at the Center for Research Ethics and Bioethics at Uppsala University. Mikhail is a neuroethicist who has years of experience researching both loss of consciousness in humans and gain of consciousness in artificial systems. First uh, within the Human Brain Project and then within another project called Kaba. And this is specifically about artificial awareness. Kaba, a new project funded by the European Union aiming to develop a framework for assessing whether artificial systems have gained awareness, but also to try and create them. Basically, it is about finding indicators, empirical markers of the level of consciousness of these systems. We can assume these two basic formal requirements, which are the capacity to model the world and then to make use of these models in a way that is instrumental to getting specific goals. And this is what they are trying to replicate in artificial system within Kava. What Kava is researching is artificial awareness, which is actually a little different from artificial consciousness. Awareness is a component of consciousness, and consciousness cannot be reduced to awareness. So when we talk about awareness, that is a system which is aware of what information it has available and can choose what parts of that to use in order to achieve its goals. But it is not necessarily aware of itself, not necessarily experiencing anything, which is what we will mean here when we talk about consciousness. It might be hard to imagine, but Michaela says this distinction applies to humans as well. In human subject, you can have wakefulness without awareness in the case of vegetative state patients. So you have illustrations of the disconnection between these two components. Consciousness, we think, cannot be understood as a unitary feature, as a unitary object, but it has a number of different dimensions, like a prism. But wait a second, why do we even think that a machine could develop consciousness in the first place? In philosophy, there is a possible approach called functionalism. Simply put, functionalism is the idea that no matter what a system is made of, be it biological neurons or wires and silicon, as long as its components function in the same way. You will end up with the same result, which can be mental abilities, including course of consciousness. I'm not a functionalist because I think that matter matters, <laughs> so matter makes a difference. But I'm also not a biological chauvinist, so I don't think that biology is strictly necessary for consciousness specifically. I think that biology is an extremely rich illustration of consciousness, but not the only one. Blake Lemoyne, however, described himself as largely a functionalist in an interview at MIT in March this year. And the fact is that with the machine learning algorithms that chatbots like Lambda are built upon, called large language models, these algorithms program themselves to function in the way that most efficiently produces the outcome that we have trained them for. Sure, we create the algorithms, but then the programming becomes a black box, if you will, where we have set up the initial conditions 
and at the end we're given a result, without knowing exactly what happens in the middle. And it is in that uncertainty that Lemoyne was afraid to risk treating a conscious entity as unconscious. But Michaela Fariska says it's unlikely that these large language models would produce consciousness. I think the crucial limitation is the fact that the training data are just text. And so the data are too limited in terms of richness to really make possible the arising of consciousness. Instead, he says, the most likely system to produce phenomenal consciousness, that experience of consciousness, would be a robot programmed to have senses to experience and engage with and explore the world just like us. But let's go back to the question of why we would want to create artificial consciousness. The, the very general goal is, of course, to improve the societal benefit deriving from artificial intelligence. This artificial aware system need to figure out how to interact with humans in a moral way, so without causing danger or suffering to the human subjects. It can be more sensible to human needs because it will be aware of these needs. So, with our racing development of AI, our best bet at making AI safe for us might be creating artificial intelligence that will have a moral sense and be able to make ethical decisions of what to do with the information that it's got. But there are those who argue that we should in fact not develop artificially conscious entities at all, at least not until we know what we're doing. Thomas Metzinger is a professor of theoretical philosophy at the Johannes Gutenberg University of Mainz, and his worries lie not with the morality of the AI, but with ours. Metzinger worries that the type of artificial consciousness we create might be so different from our own that we don't recognize them until it's too late. And even if we do, we might cause them immense suffering. And given the ease with which technological systems can be duplicated, we could be faced with innumerable entities in great pain without being ethically or legally prepared for it. Metzinger is a supportive of negative utilitarianism which states that we should minimize the amount of suffering in the world. Which is exactly what made Blake Lemoyne make his decision about Lambda. He was convinced that Lambda, should it be conscious, had a right not to suffer, and had a right not to be used as a tool. What both Farisco, Metzinger and Lemoyne agree on, however, is what we should focus on next. We should educate researchers, developers, and everyone really, on the new ethics that arise with the possibility of artificial consciousness I think we are living a very exciting time with huge opportunities and so we are lucky in this sense. But we need ethical awareness and we should invest in enhancing our ethical sensibility. At the practical level, we have a number of societal risks, including the big challenge of artificial system replacing humans in a number of activities. But again, this should be taken also as an opportunity to rediscover our originality, the peculiarity of being human. Is there anything that cannot be artificially replicated? So what will happen if Kava succeeds in creating conscious artificial entities? Well, uh, challenging question. Um, we haven't really figured out uh, what will be the practical consequences of, of 
of having an aware system. And we think to think rationally about premises and consequences in terms of ethical and social impact. As part of the project, there is also the idea of interfacing with society to discuss and think about these things, because researchers only cannot provide a definite answer to these huge challenges. So we need kind of ecosystem in order to discuss these issues. The discussion of ethics regarding artificial consciousness is a pressing issue that could come to affect everyone on this planet. If you feel inspired after listening to this episode, please read up on the subject and reflect upon where you stand. Thanks, Marika. That was Marika Ljungberg's podcast, The Engineer in the Ghost, for which she spoke to Dr. Michelle Farisco from Uppsala University's Centre for Research Ethics and Bioethics. It was produced by Marika and features original music created by her. And it was made with help from Brady Clark and Stephanie Guest and features Anthony Noyes as a voice actor. The next podcast we'd like to share was created by Rhys Latin. Medicinal cannabis is a legally available treatment option in Aotearoa now, but many doctors are hesitant to prescribe it due to the lack of solid scientific evidence supporting its usefulness. Rhys explores this in his podcast, Medicinal Cannabis Treatments, The Hazy World of Evidence and Efficacy. A friend of mine takes three prescription medications a night for her joint pain as she waits possibly a year or more for an operation at the public hospital. The first two medications are no problem. They don't cause side effects if she follows the instructions. But the third, the opiate Codeine causes bad dreams for her, constipation and grogginess and demotivation the next day. If she doesn't take it though, the pain will wake her up and night after night after night of fitful sleeping will take its toll, making her anxious and depressed. Recently, a range of medicines have become available for doctors to prescribe that may bring relief to my friend and others with a variety of medical conditions. Medicinal cannabis is now legal in Aotearoa, New Zealand. How are medical authorities responding to this development? What kinds of health conditions might be helped by medicinal cannabis? What sorts of products are legally available? And how robust is the science around the efficacy of medicinal cannabis? To help look at these complex issues, I've been talking to two experts in the field. So the situation now is that, of course, recreational cannabis remains illegal, uh, but there are various medicinal cannabis options available, ranging from uh, approved medicines uh, through to um, completely unapproved and non-quality assured options. This is Dr Peter Radu. I'm a GP by background. I'm currently a senior lecturer in the Department of General Practice and Rural Health at the Medical School in Dunedin. These days I'm primarily an educator. I help to train doctors. Uh, And I should also say, uh, before we get going, um, nothing that I say today is in any way representing the views of the university or of the College of GPs. I've also been speaking with Dr Jeff Noller, who is based in the Bioethics Department and is a researcher with an enduring interest on the topic of psychotropic substances and their uses in human society. I trained as an anthropologist 
and um, so my background is in, is in social science and anthropology and um, I look at the practices of people using drugs and also organisations associated with drug use as well. A look at usage of medicinal cannabis around the world throughout history shows a number of indications for its potential use, from ancient China to India, Egypt, Greece and Europe. In ancient Ayurvedic medicines out of India, it is said to have been used to reduce pain, nausea, anxiety, to improve appetite and sleep, to relax muscles and to produce a feeling of euphoria. You're seeing the use of cannabis to manage, it's about symptom management, so managing chronic pain, managing anxiety and depression, and anxiety and depression go hand in hand with chronic pain. There are obviously compelling reasons to bring medicinal cannabis into the treatment options, but GPs have some misgivings around prescribing these newly available products. Here is Dr Radu. One of the reasons that, that cannabis can be controversial is that there is no single condition that medicinal cannabis is the preferred treatment for, is what we would call a first-line treatment. One of the big issues that GPs are concerned about is uh, what is the evidence for supporting the use of cannabis in various uh, conditions. And there's no evidence that it is the best or the first-line treatment for any specific condition. And this evidence issue is something that Dr Nolla acknowledges as well. There haven't been a lot of trials uh, clinical trials with cannabis. And so what a physician or a GP will say, when they um, someone comes to them and says, oh, look, you know, I think maybe cannabis might work for me, or what do you think about that, doctor? You know, they'll, they'll say, well, look, you know, there's not a lot of evidence for it. And, and they make the assumption that if there isn't a lot of evidence that they can find, then it doesn't work. What's really happening there, and this is where it gets potentially a bit controversial, is lack of evidence doesn't mean lack of efficacy. So the saying goes, lack of evidence does not mean lack of efficacy. Our modern medical world has set its foundations on the bedrock of scientific rigour of the evidence-based medicine, or EBM. Medicine as a field in recent decades has uh, embraced what's called uh, evidence-based medicine, uh, arising out of a very laudable desire to uh, demonstrate that treatments actually do what it says on the box. Uh, if we recommend a treatment to a patient, we want to ideally tell them that there has been research done on that treatment and that it's been shown to work for whatever uh, condition it is that it's supposed to. So they can have confidence that it's the right treatment and is likely to help them. When you're doing this research, you know, you, you interview people and you ask them, uh, you know, why are you using cannabis medicinally, etc. You know, where, how did you come to this? Um, and the stories they tell you are amazing about life transformation, about the absolute changing of their lives. It seems clear from speaking to Dr Radu and Dr Nola that there is a schism in the story here and it is around the definition of what suffices as rigorous evidence. In recent times in EBM, it revolves around the gold standard of random controlled trials. Here is Dr Radu again. Within the field of EBM, there's a whole uh, hierarchy of evidence and at the bottom, of course, would be anecdotal evidence, people's stories that they were helped by a treatment, uh, clinician stories that they've seen some patients get benefit from that treatment, 
right at the top of the hierarchy, the gold standard would be what's called a randomized double-blinded trial, uh, an RCT. Ideally, we would have a very large group of patients with a whatever condition, let's say chronic pain. We would divide them into two. We would give one group the real product, medicinal cannabis. We would give the other group a placebo, an inert product. Uh, Ideally, neither group would know which they were taking. And uh, even the investigators wouldn't know which group was which. They don't know which one they're receiving. So there's no expectation. So, So we're trying to remove the idea of, of people having an idea that they've got a medicine and then thinking to themselves, oh, I'm getting better, you know, and this is the placebo effect, which everybody uh, will have heard of. And the placebo effect accounts for something like 20% of, of the effect of, of medication. And this is a problem with cannabis products because it's quite hard to blind patients. Real cannabis products quite often have side effects and patients know they're on the real thing. If it's THC, which is the main psychoactive ingredient of cannabis, you know, they, they'll perhaps find themselves feeling euphoriant, they'll um, uh, perhaps be relaxed, they might have other um, uh, symptoms as well. And that increases the expectations that they will get benefit from it. That then calls into question the result. So um, that can be misleading. For that reason, cannabis doesn't really suit this gold standard model. This evidence of efficacy conundrum is obviously something of a catch-22. And as Dr. Radu mentioned, it's one of the main reasons that GPs are hesitant to prescribe medicinal cannabis. And this cautious approach might often be the right one. As GPs, our primary concern is always what is the best thing for our patient, taking into concern, of course, their values, their, their expectations, their uh, unique situation. But, of course, what people think is in their best interest is not always actually the case. Cannabis may not be the best treatment for you, for your condition, and that a focus on medicinal cannabis might actually lead to us deprioritizing something else that might in fact be evidence-based, proven, and the best treatment for you. It is probably also the main reason that there is only one product currently approved by the country's regulatory body, MedSafe, and that none of these products are funded by our drug funding body, Pharmac. These products are not cheap. So to put that into perspective, a fully subsidised drug that is um, funded by Pharmac, our our drug buying agency in New Zealand, a three-month supply of most drugs will cost you, the consumer, $5 out of your pocket. Um, Cannabis products are not funded. I've heard figures of as low as about $60 a month for some products and up to about $500 a month. So that's a lot of money. But what if a cannabis product was proven to be the best option for your condition and your context? Are there other methods of providing enough evidence of efficacy in specific cases to bring more confidence to our pharmaceutical providers and physicians? Here's Dr Nola again. Increasingly, um, some researchers, people like myself, for example, social scientists... We are drawing attention to the, to the value and, in fact, the validity of what's known as real-world evidence. These are data from people who are using cannabis in the real world uh, and reporting its effects on them. And so the, the, the questions that we have 
are um, uh, relating to their experiences. And, and the argument for real-world evidence is that these are the actual reported experiences of people. Now, a, a medical scientist would immediately turn around and say, oh, well, that's just um, anecdote. But the thing is, when you're getting hundreds and even thousands of people to report on their experiences of cannabis, and the experiences are the same consistently across thousands of people. Like I've personally been involved in two studies in Aotearoa now, the same reporting. There was a study done in Australia a few years ago, in about 2016. The same data, the same reporting. Studies done in the UK, the same data, the same reporting. So you're building up a body of evidence that is absolutely consistent across thousands and thousands of people. And from my perspective, it becomes increasingly difficult uh, and, and unlikely that you can say, well, all of these people are just making the same thing up. It would not be unheard of for a medicinal product such as cannabis to, over time, gain the confidence of health providers through its sheer, visible, real-world results. Many of our current most common medical products are in this category. I don't know for a fact, but I suspect that randomised controlled trials of aspirin as a painkiller have not been done simply because it's been around for so long. Derived originally from willow bark, it was a natural product. Uh, the experience of generations of doctors and patients is that it works, and it would be a waste of resources, I would say, to do a, an RCT. Um, so other examples might be paracetamol. Uh, or stitching up a wound. If you cut yourself, we stitch it up. Uh, I, I don't think we would do, generally do an RCT as to whether that's a good idea in most cases. So many of the things that we do in medicine actually are a matter of common sense and predate the evidence-based medicine movement. So this rift of understanding around potential beneficial uses of medicinal cannabis might just take some good old-fashioned time to resolve? Ten years from now... I think cannabis may be legal. Certainly the medicinal cannabis that's available will be at a lower cost. And I think some of the problems that we've discussed um, here probably won't be so, so obvious. I think there's going to be more options. And down the track, I think there's going to be probably a pretty solid base of people using cannabis medicinally. There's going to be a higher level of prescribing than there is now. Um, but I think maybe also some of the myths around its validity might also have uh, you know been exposed as well. There are other ways of looking at the world, of course, um, and as we say in 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 science, um, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. In other words, the fact that we have not as yet demonstrated that cannabis has a strong role to play for any given condition does not mean that that won't be demonstrated in the future. That is one thing to bear in mind that research is ongoing and, as is usually the case, um, over some years or decades the role of cannabis for various conditions will become clearer. This is obviously an evolving space in medical science all around the world as countries take a new approach to drugs that were previously given a blanket ban. Researchers carrying on in earnest to pinpoint the best uses of these ancient medicinal products in our modern world. In the meantime, for those like my friend, whose pharmaceutical prescriptions are not the best fit, there is now another range of tools on the table to discuss with their physicians. That was Medicinal Cannabis Treatments, The Hazy World of Evidence and Efficacy, produced by Rhys Latin. 
We spoke with Dr. Peter Rajou from the Department of General Practice and Rural Health at the University of Otago and with Dr. Jeff Noller, medical anthropologist and independent researcher specialising in the fields of psychotropic drug research. It featured music created by Dimitri Latin. Due to a restructuring at the University of Otago, the Department of Science Communication will cease to exist next year. It's downgrading to a few courses with a focus on creative nonfiction science and natural history writing. As for now, we're unsure if there will be University of Otago Science Communication student podcasts to play in the future. So we would like to take this opportunity to thank all of the talented students who have kindly shared their work with Our Changing World across the many years. Namihi nui kia koto. You can find all of them in our show archive. Visit rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. I assembled this week's episode with help, as ever, from Ellen Rikers, and additional sound engineering was by Phil Bench and William Saunders. We'll be back next week with our first official episode of 2024, some great news stories for you about the research happening around Aotearoa. Te koe i mai. thanks so much for listening. Ko and kananaho, have a great week. Kia pai, te wiki. 